The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's podcast, NPS student Joe Novak sits down and has a drink with NPS professor and chair of the Space Systems Academic Group, Dr. Jim Newman. So Micronesia, I've never met anyone born in Micronesia. So my dad was a grad student at Berkeley, got his master's degree, and he and my mom already had one child, and they decided to take a couple of years off, and he was going to teach at the Pacific Island Central School, which was at that time located on Truck, now it's on Ponpei, a chuk as it's pronounced now, and they went out there for a couple of years, and they decided they were going to save some money and have another kid. And save some money. Save some money, yeah. It's just, so it's cheaper to have a child out there. Oh, yeah. Save, save some money and oh. have another kid. And so they had, and I'm the other kid. <laughs> and so after those two years were up, we came back. He finished up his uh, graduate work. He got his Ph.D., went down to Scripps, basically uh, for the rest of his career, a couple of years at Harvard, decided he preferred the West Coast. So I grew up in Southern California, hmm. surfing, skateboarding. Do you feel any connection to the those incredible explorers and adventurers that the ancient Polynesians were setting off into an ocean in that direction and hoping to, to land on something. Absolutely. In fact, the being in space on my first space flight, I looked down at the oceans and of course I was trying to find the island where I was born. And sure we're going five miles a second, so we don't have a lot of time, but it was really hard to find that island. <laughs> and we were looking at, you know, hundreds of miles, and we knew where it ought to be. Got up in the middle of the night with my commander, and we just finally found it. And I thought to myself, how did they do that? Hmm. Very impressive feat. Because the Earth can't be that large if it only takes an hour and a half to go around. <laughs> but if one spends, as I did when I had some free time, some of that time just looking out the window, it's really big. And the Pacific Ocean is huge. So that these explorers took off and did so well is truly uh, astonishing. And I was 10 months old when we left. Mm -hmm. I was 30 years old when we first went back. Oh, okay. See, my goal was to go back every 30 years, if not more often. They have fantastic wreck diving. Okay. in the lagoon on truck, it's mm-hmm. where we surprised the Japanese fleet mm-hmm. and sunk most of it there. Uh, and so it was when I went, last time I went was 33 years ago. And So you're due. I'm overdue. I, we were going to go every 30 years, but my mother was too old last time, and so we only took her as far as Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that met the, the goal, getting out to the islands. I was very impressed. When you say some free time, uh, you, you're sleeping maybe six hours a night on average, as I understand it. Your schedule is absolutely packed. Was it worth it to take that minute or two to, to look for the island? Oh, absolutely. Well, and my motto always was uh, we have supposed to have eight hours. They can take it down to seven hours of rest without a waiver, and below seven they have to get a waiver. So we'd get an adequate rest period, but I'll admit that unless I had a critical activity the next day, I might not get to bed on time. And if I had a critical activity the next day, then I absolutely prioritized the rest and getting some sleep, like a spacewalk or a robotic event uh, or supporting one. But on the nights when I didn't have a critical activity, yes, normal schedule, very busy, but if I didn't have a critical activity, I would stay up a bit late. Enjoy as a number of us did the few moments uh, of looking out the window and listening to music and and just kind of trying to absorb the experience, knowing how short it would be. 
So yeah, is that possible? I mean, you're you've got so much on your mind. You you mess up one little detail, and it could be it could end the mission. It could end a life. How were you able to take yourself out of that kind of pressure cooker and truly, as you say, appreciate a moment or two? Well, as you yourself know, uh, as a pilot, it's important to be able to focus on the task at hand, do as well as you can, but nonetheless to compartmentalize the things that don't need to be worried about at certain times. And by training in an environment where it is critical, for example, as you did in your flying and we did in our flight training, we're able to manage the risk in such a way that we can still function and function well. And that's the point, right, is from the training, is to be able to function well. So by taking civilians such as myself who don't have the flight background of a, of a military officer, uh, they would ramp us up. I flew sailplanes. Some of my friends flew Cessnas, bug smashers. Uh, but almost all of us flew as civilians, the few exceptions, one fellow was a deep sea diver. And that counted because what they're really looking for is not only people who have a, a love of flying, because being an astronaut's a flying job, but also people who are able to operate under circumstances where what you do matters right now and has immediate consequences, as you mentioned, potentially fatal. And that's the goal is to be able to take people from any walk of life, civilians such as myself, for example. The military officers typically have already been subjected to operational tours where what they do really matters, whether it's flying or being an officer on a ship or, or whatever it happens to be. And what they would do with us is take us and train us how to fly as a backseater, the T-38. But as you're probably aware, the T-38 has a full set of controls in the yeah. backseat. Great, Jen and is a, is a great training aircraft. Uh, and so we, as civilians, got checked out as co-pilots. Of course, the front seater, the pilot, is responsible for the takeoffs and landings because, as we all know, it's only when you're close to the ground or hitting the ground when things are very dangerous. Uh, as long as you're in the air, everything's fine. <laughs> so the, uh, the, that was the idea, was to give us plenty of opportunity to work for crew coordination with the, the front seater and to be exposed to an environment where it really mattered what we did and to understand how we could operate in that safely, do the training, get the mindset, and then take that up one level further and go to space with it. And uh, by and large, it works. Did you have any experiences where, no kidding, you were this close to either doing something dumb or getting killed because someone else did something dumb? Of course. Yeah? If you fly long enough, that will always happen, whether it's in an airplane or in a space shuttle, right? There's, there's going to be those circumstances. On my first flight, we deployed the first KA-band geostationary comm satellite and AXE-TOS. And it was the Advanced Communication Technology Satellite built up at Glenn. And when we deployed it, it took up most of the payload bay. It rotates up. And then after Carl hit the deploy switch, it rose up majestically out of the payload bay. And along with it went a bunch of what looked like debris. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, is it supposed to do that? We were a young crew. We had a commander who had flown once, a pilot who had flown once, and three rookie mission specialists. They made the commander a one-time? Had flown once before. Once before, got it. And the pilot had flown once before. So the commander had flown once as a pilot. The pilot had flown once as a flight engineer. Mm. And three rookie... Uh, mission specialist. Mm -hmm. And this was STS-51 in 93? Correct. Mm -hmm. And we trained very hard and got delayed a few times before we finally got the launch. And overall, we did really, really well. The debris that went up, it turned out we reported to the ground the next day when we had the opportunity because as, as uh, Dan lifted up the 
Orpheus Spas, the telescope that was sitting in front of the comm satellite, we could see what was left of the restraining ring that held the, the large satellite, and it had clearly been blown to smithereens, and that explained <coughs> the debris that went with it. And so we didn't fully appreciate how concerned the ground was about that, but they did, we did get an inkling of that when on our first spacewalk, Carl and I were encouraged to, during our, we were given a few minutes of sort of getting our space legs, and which meant, hey, you've got 10 minutes, go ahead and just translate up and down on the safety wires and the handholds and get used to being outside before we go put you to work uh, testing out all these tools. And they said, oh, and if you don't mind, if you would, during your turn, one at a time, they said, go to the very back and look at the aft bulkhead of the space shuttle and let us know if you see anything in particular. Okay. Okay, back there. And, and they admitted they were looking for powder marks, perhaps. And so we looked for that, and we saw a few little powder marks on it, and because when this ring had exploded, they were very concerned, we find out later, that shrapnel might have damaged the aft bulkhead. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that a piece of shrapnel did penetrate the aft bulkhead in the oh. area of the hydraulic lines. <laughs> okay. But fortunately, the aft bulkhead had slowed down the shrapnel enough that it did not damage the hydraulic lines. How were you able to assess that? They assessed it after the flight. Oh. Once they had the vehicle back, they were able to well, they go in and inspect it, and and they were able to determine by removing blankets and the uh, insulation. They were able to determine that oh, look, some shrapnel did go through. Wow. Yeah. So that's you, one of the examples we, we didn't know at the time, and we didn't find out until later. So you know, it's you know, ignorance is bliss in many situations. Was the crew particularly nervous on reentry, or no. just okay? Oh no. The, if we'd had a hydraulic leak, we'd have come home the same day. Mm-hmm. Now, you, uh, your crew on that had another well-known NPS professor, recently retired uh, Dan Birch. Correct. Any stories about Dan Birch before we have him uh, in the Trident Room? The, uh, the stories I have are ones that Dan and I can probably share from that flight. And uh, he was the robotic operator, and Carl and I were doing the spacewalks. Uh, and we ended up having a great time, our families got along well together. Our kids were all being born around the same time. So, uh, and, and they kind of grew up together. And by chance, literally by chance, we ended up here as hmm. well. When Dan came here in 03, he and, and his uh, uh, wife and three kids came here, we went to Moscow mm -hmm. almost the same time by chance. Mm -hmm. And so we were three years in Moscow and then we came back. Now, my wife, being a Texan, hadn't originally been interested in, in coming to Monterey. I had suggested we come because, as, as you may know, there's a, a, a Smith McCool, a, a NASA chair named after Smith McCool, a professorship here. And I had heard about it, uh, and I realized that oh, it might be interesting to do for a year or two. And I had suggested it several years earlier to my wife, and she had said, no. And not only no, but heck no. She's a Texan, okay? And uh, so I gave up on that idea and just, I thought it was a, a long shot, but a year or two later I suggested, well, why don't, you know, we go to Russia and for a, a year or two? And she said, sure, which completely surprised me given yeah. that, that Russia ranked higher than Monterey. Uh, and so we did go to Moscow and served the International Space Station program for three years living in Moscow. And apparently, after three years in Moscow, Monterey didn't look so bad. <laughs> now, we're in the Trident Room right now. You had the hungry duck over there. How was that? Or was that uh, the Wild West was coming to an end? You were, you were in ISS Russia. You weren't really NASA Mir, so maybe it was a little different time? Well, it certainly was different than Mir. Russia just had come out of being the Soviet Union. And although when we got there in 03, the neighborhood 
grocery store was still a producti, where one would go and pick out individual items, and there were basically a bunch of different stores, very primitive in one area by modern standards. But by the time we left, uh, they, had, uh, they had real grocery stores in the neighborhood. So uh, three years later, made a lot. We were still getting along well with Russia at the time, relatively well. And so it was really a good time to, to be there. And we were living at uh, uh, close enough to downtown that we could actually just walk to the Bolshoi if we wanted. And I didn't know how much I liked ballet until I saw the Bolshoi in, in, you know, live. And so we ended up going quite often until they closed the Bolshoi for renovations in, I think it was 05. So we had a couple of good years of, of real culture, uh, Russian ballet, spectacular. So you've seen, uh, well, all of the spaceflight history from the Magnificent Seven, the Next Nine, uh, on through Apollo, Skylab, onto the shuttle, working with the Russians, ISS. And now we're, we're looking at uh, private companies. Just so what are some of your thoughts on the SpaceX, on private companies working in, in delivering modules to ISS, uh, and the future of, uh, the near future of spaceflight? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that there's a couple of different realms, right, of spaceflight. One is human spaceflight, there's commercial spaceflight, and now there is also space as a contested environment. And particularly, uh, I would think, understood by your audience here at NPS. It's one of the big developments, and it's why we have a Space Force. One of the things I'll do is also put in a plug for Professor Clay Moles here at NPS. He is over in the National Security Affairs, and he really has a great deal of understanding, I would say, of Russia, China's space programs, and ours as well. And one of his contentions is that we should not underestimate the power of our country's ability to innovate, and in particular, in this case, innovate in space. And that commercial space innovation may end up being more of a driver in the space environment than military space. As long as we don't go to a real shooting war in space, hopefully we all have sufficient assets in space that no one actually does that because uh, a shooting war in space would result in debris, sufficient debris probably to make it, low Earth orbit at least, uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. We will still compete in space. We may, they may, everyone may do things in space to try to maintain advantages, to confer disadvantages to others. That's human nature. It's what we do. But from the point of view of let's step away from that for a moment and go back to human spaceflight. Now, in human spaceflight, which does rely on the ability to go to low Earth orbit, NASA has decided to leave low Earth orbit really to commercial space, right? The last thing probably that it will have for quite a while in low Earth orbit is the International Space Station. And sure, that's huge. Uh, Will it ever be commercially viable to maintain the International Space Station as a premium research laboratory? Well, we hope so. But space is very expensive. It really does need government at this point for human spaceflight. It needs government assistance. Now, ISS, just a quick uh, question. ISS has been up for, or inhabited, I should say, for 20 years. How much longer do you think it'll go? They're working to extend it all the time. So the real question is we just don't know. The, uh, as, as you're aware, I was on the first assembly mission for the International Space Station and had what an opportunity to learn about the future program, I was disappointed I never got to go back. Dan Burse, as you know, did, so I'm sure you'll get to hear about his six-month-at-the-time record-breaking flight to the International Space Station when he and Carl set a a long-duration record at that time of about six months. Of course, we've been up over a year since then, but uh, at a time. Uh, But And a, a number of astronauts have accumulated even more than that. But so the, the future of the ISS is, is worth an entire discussion itself because sure. there's no shuttle to bring it down, piece at a time. 
There's no way to bring it down a piece at a time. So the real question is, when it is done, how will it come down? We remember the, the, uh, the worries around Skylab back in the day, and it came down and ended up you know, littering itself across some good part of Australia, right? I think we paid, so NASA paid a few uh, uh, sheep death claims okay. due to falling debris. Likely, unlikely, doesn't really matter. Likely, the, when the space station comes down, hopefully we'll be able to control it mm -hmm. because it's, what is it, a million pounds of hardware. And a lot of it will make it to the ground. We know, unfortunately, we know from the shuttle Columbia accident that we recovered a third of Columbia by mass. So probably didn't quite find it all. So a lot of the debris in an atmospheric, high, high altitude atmospheric breakup makes it to the ground. So that's the International Space Station. How long it's going to last, they're going to work very hard to keep it up to make it relevant. You brought up the point about SpaceX and becoming the taxi service, for example, for getting humans into space. The, the Russians, interestingly enough, on the one hand, didn't like being our taxi service because they didn't feel that was a partnership. They felt that was not really worthy of them, but they really needed and liked the, the, the money that came along with doing that. Fortunately, uh, Mr. Musk has been successful so far with SpaceX and has sort of challenged the status quo, which is what we need from time to time and is a, a key part of innovation, which goes back to Professor Moltz's thesis that we are able to, because of our system, we are able to out-innovate and out-develop uh, out new capabilities that places like China and Russia are just not going to be able to do, and that that will be a strategic advantage in the end. Mm -hmm. Something worth way more than what it seems as we add up all these little pieces. So time will tell. Mm -hmm. So so that being said, back in 1993, your first of four flights, where did you think we were going to be in 2020? Well, we all were hoping for the moon. Well, not all, but most of us, I would say in the astronaut office at least, and certainly is what I was hoping for. I mean, I grew up. I'm old enough to remember distinctly watching the first moon landing yeah. and thinking I was of an age when I, you know, I was young enough that I wasn't sure what I was going to do for a living, but I knew I was going to have to go to work someday. And, and because I like math and science already, and I love the idea of flying, uh, it looked to me like a great way to make a living. My goal was essentially to be a the lunar research facility manager. I wanted to be the person who's six months on, six months off, right? mm. six months on the moon, six months on the earth. It's kind of like what they do out in the, you know, the deep sea uh, oil rigs and the and North Sea oil rigs, is to be that person who knew everything about that facility, was able to make it, uh, do a little bit of research myself maybe, but more importantly, make it, uh, provide it as a research capability to others who would then dedicate themselves to the experiments. Sort of like an Antarctic station where we collaborate well with other countries where we have agreed uh, to not claim it as our own, but to share it for the world. And that, I think, is a great model. And so, so then in the early 90s, we were all hoping that we would get to do that at some point. Unfortunately, it hasn't panned out. Sure. Now, fast forward to 2020, Artemis is on the horizon. Um, where do you see us, or where would you like to see NASA manned spaceflight or human spaceflight uh, in 2040? Well, I'm, I'm still a believer in the step at a time. I don't like the idea of going straight to Mars because, and it's not just that it's hard and that it's risky. I have no problem with that. 
what I fear is the cessation of the activity just as what happened when we went to the moon. Mm -hmm. We ended up, and I'm, I'm so pleased and proud that we won that race. And to see that we could do something that hard, that quickly, that risky, you know, was, was glorious. The problem is, is that we didn't stick it out. And it's an interesting thought, and it was while I was in Russia that I came to realize some of the Russian cosmonauts didn't actually like to admit that it was a race, okay, because they had lost, right? Oh, no, we were always really more interested in Mars, okay, <laughs> was some of what I heard. And then one of them was even so uh, bold, crass, as to say, oh, did the Americans really go to the moon? <laughs> which I much enjoyed because, as we all know, those of us of an age know, is that when we, the state of computers, when we actually went to the moon, there were no digital graphics. There was no way to fake it when we actually went to the moon. And now that digital graphics and computers are so good, okay, we can fake going to the moon really well, but we can't actually go. <laughs> Ironic. Right. So there's this juxtaposition of capability that has occurred. Uh, but so while I was in Russia, it occurred to me that it was a race. They were trying to get there when that their end rocket blew up. You know, they lost that race. If they had gotten there first, what would have happened? Okay, knowing who they were, who they are, who they were, they would have stayed. They wouldn't have left. And that's perhaps an advantage. Overall, the disadvantages strongly outweigh the advantages of their system. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not espousing their system. But a system like that is able to make a longer-term commitment simply by fiat, whereas we are subject to the the... Uh, dictates of our system, which change administrations on a regular, peaceful basis. The, so if the Russians had gotten there, they would have stayed. If they had stayed, we would have gone too. We would not live under a Russian moon. We would have set up an outpost as well, and we might still be there. So I'm really glad we won, but we might have lost something as a species, as a, you know, a, a certain amount of time. I hope it's only a matter of time that we've lost the opportunity to learn more about ourselves and about our progression into our solar system, and which is something I believe in. I just believe that the moon should come before the Mars. Mm -hmm. And the station on the moon will teach us a lot, not everything, but it'll teach us a lot about what we need to know before we go to Mars. And so I hope in the next 20 years that we're actually successful in setting up and maintaining permanent outposts, lunar outposts, as part of going further. Presumably, Mars would be next. But who knows? Right? We're still learning. Who are some of your astronaut heroes? Astronaut heroes. Well, certainly the uh, there was a certain amount of of respect for the, the old guys in the office. Uh, closer in, some of the, the ones who were uh, ahead of me, my first boss at the uh, first astronaut boss was Kevin Chilton. And Kevin Chilton was a, at the time, Major Chilton, was a young Air Force officer. And he just, and he was the lead of the, those astronauts of us who were stationed at the Kennedy Space Center in order to help the, the crews who are getting to fly get into the space shuttle and get out after the flight and go around and talk to the people working on the space shuttle so that they knew real people and that what they did every day really mattered. A great job. I, I got into my, we got into a T-38 in the morning and, and commuted to work. It's an hour and 45 via T-38 from Houston to wow. the Kennedy Space Center. Fantastic. And in the afternoon, get into a, a space shuttle and check out the comm system, make sure it's ready for the crew. So it was a support job, but it was really great. And he was the lead of that. And he went on to fly three flights and 
stayed a little bit to be a, a station program manager and then went back to the Air Force and became General Chilton, four-star, uh, head of STRATCOM at one point. And uh, he was just embodied uh, a lot of, so, uh, of what was, what people talk about in, in leadership. And uh, so that was a treat. Another one of people that I really enjoyed working with was Eileen Collins in my own hmm. class. Uh, she and Ellen Ochoa were both um, outstanding examples, one military, one civilian, of people that it was that I would put in my, they're, they're my heroes, both of them. Uh, my class was only a quarter female, and of course they've reached parity finally, and it won't be too long, I, I think, you know, before we see even more improvements in the makeup of the astronaut program. So the, uh, so I see that them, those are the three that, that come to mind immediately. And I'll admit another one who I really enjoyed working with was John Blaha uh, from a previous age, a shuttle guy. But uh, I really enjoyed his, per, per, uh, he was an Air Force officer, mm -hmm. uh, commander, pilot, and uh, he was a great guy. And I'll admit on a personal note that uh, Willie McCool was actually one of the best astronauts I've ever been in a T-38 with. Hmm. Nice. And he was—he embodied many of the things that Kevin Chilton did, but unfortunately, he was on Columbia, so he did not get to live to his full potential uh, in terms of the time and the things that he was going to do. So it's—it's it's always a—you know—it's a pleasure for me to um, to know that we're doing what we can here to keep his memory alive. We have a Smith McCool a NASA chair, and we have a Smith McCool award. It goes every year to an outstanding space systems uh, graduate. And so uh, in the case of William McCool, uh, truly, you know, the good die, die young. Mm -hmm. It was a real shame uh, to lose him. Now, there's a lot of, um, obviously, it's wildly expensive. However, I've seen several studies that show for every $1 put into NASA, the U.S. economy gets three to twelve on the high end, but I've definitely seen uh, like three on the low end, somewhere five to seven ish. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. From what I've done, I haven't obviously fact checked it completely myself, but the the point is one of innovation and the ability to, and and that was true in the past. So those who argue it's not necessarily going to be true in the future, but. What I th because the, the advent of commercial satellites, of, of miniaturization of computers, so on and so forth, all of that was so important. And there's where a lot of the, the payoff came from. But the, the trick is we don't know yet hmm. what we'll find by doing the next hard thing. But all we know is that every time we do these hard things, we find really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe that won't work next time, but let's go find out. One of the things that I console myself with when I worry that we may, we America may choose to not continue in this part of the exploration, which I think we've got to do, but I, I a little bit uh, cynically perhaps or, or disheartedly console myself with, at some level it doesn't really matter if we go or not. America needs to decide whether to be part of the future. The future is not just on this planet. I believe it is also in our solar system. Because to be stuck on this planet for the next several hundred million years until the, the planet goes you know, red giant, that, that's just not a great outcome. We need to keep moving. Hopefully we'll evolve. Hopefully there'll be a, a long-term future as well as a short-term future. And I think that though some people say, hey, we have so many problems here on Earth right now. Why are you worrying about this stuff? I still think it's okay for some of us to think not just short-term, but medium-term and even long-term. And so what I console myself with is that for the short-term, if America chooses not to be part of the future, and I, I certainly hope that we choose to be part of it, but if we don't, well, the Chinese are going to. It's very clear that, that China is going to go to the moon to stay probably, and it's perhaps easier for them to do that. We know they're on the dark side of the moon right now, the back side of the moon which is a nice technological feat. Uh, putting people on there is harder and getting them back. But I'm convinced they'll do it and they'll do it in their own time. 
And the question is, will we be able to sustain some momentum and get Artemis really going, right, and, and be something that is long-term, sustainable from a national will point of view? If they told you you could go back to the moon, or you could go to the moon, I should say, but you, wouldn't, you couldn't come back, would you go? I'd probably think about it a couple of times. The question is, why wouldn't I be coming back? Because I'd be living there for the rest of my life or because I'd be dying there in the short term, right? And then I still have kids who haven't gotten married yet, so um, I have plenty to live for here on Earth. If it was a, a if now if I was told that, hey, we're never going to get rid of, uh, of COVID and we're going to have it forever and we're going to be wearing masks and socially distancing for the next 20 years, um, I can do that from the moon. So, <laughs> so, so I take the moon in a heartbeat. Okay. What's your favorite picture of space? Well, I guess it would be of the moon, right? Of the, the close-ups that we got of the moon, that being in space. It's, <clears throat> it's really too hard to pick one in terms of pictures of or from space. The pictures of the Earth, I mean, seeing with my own eyes is what's truly incredible. The pictures do pretty well, especially the, um, the IMAX pictures, mm. right? The movies on the IMAX big screen. Looking at the Earth with your own eyes, mm -hmm. did you have an existential moment there? Did, you, did it change anything in you? Did it flip any switches or was it more a gradual thing or in retrospect? How would you describe that experience? I, I'm sure it's difficult, but I'd love to hear it. Sure, they call it the, what, the overview effect, something like that. And it affects people differently. I suspect that the first people to experience it would have been the ones most susceptible to that particular effect. We, I've been seeing pictures from space and of space, you know, my, most of my adult life, right, since I was a preteen. And so it didn't have the, perhaps that same effect, although it was quite, quite an effect. It, it's a, uh, I guess one way to put it is it's always good to see things with fresh eyes. And the way a person who's been to space several times can see things with fresh eyes is by being with a first-time flyer. So on my last flight, fourth flight, we had a first-time guy and we were going to Hubble. So we were going higher up than usual, 50% higher up and the, the R squared thing gives you, you know, much larger field of view of the Earth. We could see the entire United States plus in a glance. So we're still relatively low compared to going to the moon, but we're starting to see a good portion of the Earth. And when we first got to space and we're all got out of our seats and the some of us mission specialists were in the back looking out the window. And the new guy looking out the window, seeing the earth below us. It was during the day, so it wasn't dark. It was daytime. And he says, it's a planet. <laughs> and for the first time in all my four flights, I felt like, if you remember Star Trek, what would Scotty say to Captain Kirk? Something like, arriving planet side, Captain. And I felt like that moment. Wow. Of, hey, we're arriving at a planet. Okay, but we'd come taken off of it. But it was the first time I really had that feeling as if we were a starship. Okay. Wow. And, and that, at some level, probably was one of the most profound moments. On your fourth flight. How about that? Fourth flight. Through the eyes of a new guy, right? Through his experience, I was able to go to, to that kind of a, an effect where it's like, Wow, someday, I hope, someday this will be commonplace. We're arriving planet side, and we're a long way from that, but that's got to be our goal. Again, it goes back to if we're stuck on planet Earth, then we will have failed as a species, in my opinion. Now, speaking of species, um, outside of the solar system, life um, among the stars, what are your thoughts on uh, on uh, on the potential of life out there? Naturally, there's 
billions and billions of stars, so that there's certainly at least millions and millions of habitable planets. Um, and there's lots of elements of physics that prevent us um, yeah. from knowing a lot what's out there, but what would you say about the potential for life out there? Well, it's interesting the way you framed the question even, because you, I think you might have used, you have to check the tape, might have used the word obviously there's you know, millions and millions of habitable planets. Well, growing up, people had done the math and made their reasonable assumptions, and they said, yeah, there's a good chance we're the only one. I never bought that. It's like, oh, come on, you know, get a grip, right? And now we have essentially proven it. So there's been a mind shift. It's, it's similar, perhaps not as widespread, but similar to the, what do you mean it's a coincidence that South America fits into Africa? Because when I was growing up, plate tectonics was not firmly established. They weren't teaching that yet to kids in kindergarten, elementary school. You know, oh yeah, of course they, they fit because they used to be together. No, 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 that was a coincidence. The continents don't move, okay? <laughs> really? So what we see are these shifts in our understanding. But it takes a while to get the scientific background and basis and then in order to be able to come up with arguments that are not necessarily irrefutable, but they're very powerful. And these arguments then can lead to a shift in thinking. And now we think, I certainly do, and, and most of the people I know who have studied it at all agree that, as you said, there's probably millions, if not billions, of habitable planets. And the question is then, why haven't they come and visited? Well, there's a couple of good reasons why we might not have seen them yet, although there are people who argue we have seen them. Uh, I don't think we have. One is, what is it from, uh, is, isn't it Star Trek again, where it's the, the prime directive? Uh, hmm. If you can travel to other, you know, once you have warp drive, no interfering with the primitive planets. <laughs> they have to make it or break it on their own. It, we're clearly a primitive planet. We haven't discovered warp drive. So if there are other species out there, apparently they either there is no warp drive, they haven't discovered it, or there's a prime directive that really the civilized places in the in the galaxy have all agreed, no messing with these, you know, because because we on our own planet know what happens when a more technologically advanced society interacts with a less technologically advanced society. It goes very poorly for the less technologically advanced society. So apparently that hasn't happened yet, and apparently they're not hungry. <laughs> okay. And they don't consider us food. But is there other life out there? Oh, I think with a certainty. Is Do you it, think it's carbon-based? I think it's very likely. Are there other bases for life? Gosh, wouldn't that be interesting? There might well be. But we know that we have an existence proof, yes, only of one but we know that carbon-based life can occur and it can become quite complex, as in multicellular life. And so there's no reason to think that it should only have happened here. It might have already happened many times. It might be that this is the fear and the worry, right, is that if, there's, if we are truly limited by the speed of light, then the, the galaxy, the universe may be too large to get around if we're truly limited by the speed of light. So we need new physics. Yeah, as a physicist, do you think we are limited by the speed of light? Oh, I mean, naturally, the E equals MC squared says that, but... Oh, we're completely limited by the speed of light. Mm -hmm. And my fear, it, well, not completely limited by, is it possible to build a starship and accelerate it to speeds close to the speed of light, which would slow down the apparent aging of the people on board. Yes, absolutely, we may be able to do that. But it's a really, those are one-way trips, right? Those starships will be one-way trips. And you'd really better have a great planet picked out because you're not coming <laughs> back, right, anytime soon. And that suggests that it might be that life appears like say there were a thousand, on average, a thousand planets with life on, on them at any given time, right? That's in a, in a, in a galaxy like we have of a, of a hundred, roughly a hundred billion stars, that would mean that only one in a hundred million 
one in a hundred million stars had a habitable planet with life on it at any given time. That's really low, I think. Now, uh, but even if it isn't, well, there are probably a, a trillion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. Mm -hmm. Okay, So now we're up to some real numbers. If you have a thousand in, in this galaxy and every galaxy has about a thousand, there's a there's a thousand trillion planets hmm. right now with life on them. But it may be that the speed of light limits us from going anywhere. So this is why I think it's still a fascinating time for science and physics. We have dark energy to contend with hmm. and dark matter. So those are things sort of like Last time, a uh, hundred years ago or so, when people were despairing that there was going to be any new physics, but there were these few niggling little problems that they hadn't figured out, and of course it turned out to be quite important, and we ended up learning all sorts of new physics. And the same thing may occur. In fact, you know, I was listening recently to an audiobook on on Madame Curie, right, uh, who did a whole lot of work. Two-time Nobel her, winner, yeah. Two-time Nobel winner. <clears throat> who was fantastic, what she was able to do back in the day when women were, it was very, very difficult for women to do. And so she has a fascinating biography. Uh, but what she helped usher in was a whole, whole new age with new physics. So one of the things I like to ask people is, when humans discover new physics, what's usually the first thing we do with it? One of the first things we like to do with new physics. Well, monetize, mm, shoot it down. Yeah, now you're getting there, right? Okay. What do we, do? we make better weapons, mm. right? We don't have a planet cracker yet. What if the new physics, dark energy, dark matter, what if that gave us the ability to make a planet cracker? Mm. Well, you know somebody's going to want to try it. <laughs> <laughs> Hope they don't try it on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So who knows? But that that new physics and whether or not this stays in the you know, that can probably hit the cutting room <laughs> floor. <laughs> but whether or not the, uh, the the new physics makes a planet cracker or not, the new physics you know maybe it'll give us something like warp drive. Maybe there are wormholes. Maybe 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 or maybe there's just the speed of light. Mm -hmm. In which or, case, it's a long way to go anywhere. Or maybe manipulation of the what eleven dimensions uh, can somehow bring some of the dimensions closer to each other? They might be folded on top of each other, so they're already quite close. You just have to figure out how to, like a, a, a 3D creature, right, looking at a 2D creature, the 2D creature lives on the 2D and thinks it's a long way around the corner, but actually, if they could just jump, it's mm -hmm. actually quite close. So <laughs> if you have 11 dimensions to work in, right, and there's folds in it, like, wow, could be all sorts of, you might not, end up getting to go where you want to go, but you might be able to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, Star Trek uh, and a couple other you know, works of fiction. What's your favorite space movie? Oh, my favorite space movie. I'm, I'm very difficult at picking a favorite. I'll mention a couple that Please. I, I really enjoy. Because coming from a guy who was in space, you know, if you say, yeah, gravity is cool, but it's a little weird, or this, this one or that one, that, that, well, that carries hit, a lot of let's weight. Let's hit a few of those, actually. Sure. Uh, let's start with Gravity, since you brought it up. It's not my favorite, mm -hmm. but it's good. Um, it was my daughter who taught me, before I watched the movie Gravity, which was a good thing, we were watching some movie, I can't remember what it was, a Western or something, and and, and I was poo-pooing some of the stuff they were doing, right? And my daughter elbowed me and said, Dad, with the exasperation that only a teenager can express <laughs> well, right? She said, Dad, it's a movie. And it was like, I get it. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and so when I watched Gravity, I kept that in mind. Because on the one hand, if you know enough about gravity and spaceflight, it's a comedy. Right? On the other hand, it brings into play everything that astronauts actually fear about spaceflight. Getting loose, medical issues, fire on board the station. Okay? Three of the big ones right there, and, and, and a few others as well. So on the one hand, it was a comedy. On the other hand, I was anxious on the edge of my seat the whole time. So in the end, I liked gravity. Okay? They overdid some breathing, 
of the main character. Uh, we'd love to be able to jet around. Oh, the way George Clooney did, yeah. Absolutely, on that <laughs> jetpack. Oh, that would be good. Another movie that I really enjoyed, and I, have, I won't even touch the IMAX movies for starts. I haven't seen an IMAX movie about space that I didn't like. Hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, is the movie Interstellar. Mm -hmm. I found that one particularly appealing in, in part because of the physics in it and the thinking that one has to do to understand it as well and the multi-layered plot. It brings in a number of things on a personal level about parents and children and the great idea of if we're able to do this warp drive stuff and you go to places where time truly actually flows at a different speed than at other places, like deep in a gravity well, for example, that you could outlive your children and you could come back and see them old. In fact, the, 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 the protagonist, the star, comes back and sees his daughter after many years uh, for him and even more years for her. And she's old and a grandmother and, and, and dying. And I found that very powerful because I, I have two daughters. And uh, so I found that one just really, really appealed to me on, on very many levels. The physics level as, as well as the personal, you know, human interaction level. So those are a couple of, I think, recent ones that are pretty good. And you bring up a space movie and I'll tell you what I think about it. Magnificent Desolation. Um, probably not so much to comment on that one. I'd have to go back and review. Okay. What about worst? What are the worst space movies? <laughs> Armageddon? Well, yeah, okay, sure. There's that. Not all bad. Um, do you recall the, the, one of the first space movies? In its day, it was quite good. I'm trying to remember the name of it, where the guy comes out of the space capsule, and this was back in, it must have been the 50s or something. And, and the, the, it wasn't quite the green man, but... It's a, a very old space movie, and in retrospect, it doesn't look very good. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was cutting edge. Mm. And I didn't see it at the time. I saw it more recently, and it was like, wow, this is what was really good then. <laughs> Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded on July 23rd, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.